Let's go to the Word of God. Two places, John 3, John's Gospel, chapter 3. And then I'll just read uh, a little bit from Ephesians, chapter 3. John's Gospel, chapter 3, and Ephesians, chapter 3. Of course, John's Gospel, chapter 3, verse 16. Familiar, isn't it? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then Ephesians 3, verse 17. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you may be enrooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. There's no question that Psalm 23 is the most sung portion of Scripture in the Bible. There's also no question that John 3.16 is the most quoted Scripture in the entire Bible. It's probably one of the very first scriptures that we learned, and probably all of us could say it verbatim. Learned it at Sunday school. We've heard it spoken so many times. And it really is a tremendous scripture. It's a theological Everest as far as the Bible is concerned. There's all ways we can look at it. And uh, the reason why I read Ephesians 3.18 particularly uh, was because it talks about the dimensions of God's love. It speaks of the breadth and the length and the depth and the height of God's love. For God so loved the world, there is the expanse, there is the breadth of it, that he gave his only begotten son, there is the length, the length that God went to to save us. That whoever believes in him should not perish. There's the depth that God would save us from perishing in a lost eternity in hell itself, but have everlasting life. There's the height of it that God is able to save to the uttermost. And so we have the dimensions of the love of God. Old Sidlow Baxter, that great old preacher of old, he points out that these four dimensions of God's love can be seen very clearly in the scripture that we read together, John 3, 16. You remember how that whenever Jesus was on the cross, that Pilate uh, wrote on the cross an inscription, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And he wrote it in Hebrew, he wrote it in Greek, and he wrote it in Latin. And those three languages represented the three greatest cultures on earth in Jesus' day. The Hebrew culture and the Greco-Roman culture were the three great worldwide cultures of the day. So there again we see that God so loved the world, the whole world, every culture, every person in the world. And then we see the length of it, the lengths that God went to to show us His mercy through His Son. I believe that the very nails that pierced the hands and the feet of the Savior, I believe they pierced the heart of the Father as well. What a 
tremendous thing that the Father did to give his only begotten Son. And then the depths of the love of God, that whosoever believes in him, the depths of it, that the Son of God should be crucified, should be hung naked before all and beaten and whipped and his beard plucked out and spat upon and scourged and nailed to a cross. The depths of God's love. And then the height of God's love shall not perish but have everlasting life. He said to that one thief who repented, today you shall be with me in paradise. What opposites, bleeding and dying on a cross, that old thief, writhing in agony, being laughed at and cursed at, but to know that in a moment's time he would be in paradise. The height of God's love. So tonight as we look at this scripture afresh, I want to pose you a question. Why do men find it so hard to believe that God so loves this world? Why do they find that so hard to believe? Because so many today don't believe that. Even if they believe there is a God, why should God love this world? Let me give you just maybe two or three reasons why it's so hard for them to believe that God loves this world. Perhaps it's because this earth that we live in is so small. It really is extremely small. So tiny. There was a a time, of course, whenever men believed that our earth, this planet that we live on, was the center of our solar system and the sun and all the planets revolved around it. Of course, we know that's nonsense. The center of our solar system, of course, is that great big hydrogen ball of gas called the sun. But now we know the truth is that the earth is just such a tiny little place. If you could scoop out the inside of the sun, you could put 1,300,000 earths inside of it. And our sun is just a small yellow sun. Small. By standards of suns, by other stars, it's small. And yet... Compared to us, it's huge. It's enormous. You know, I was just reading this afternoon. It just staggered me that, to think this, that if there was a billion major cities on this earth and they generated energy for one full year, imagine a billion major cities generating energy for one full year, it would only equal one second of the energy of the sun. So we're very small. In the grand scheme of things, we're even smaller than that. Never mind our solar system, we're tiny in that, but in our galaxy, the Milky Way. Let me show you this plate. 
I'm glad it's washed. Anyway, there's that plate. Just imagine that this plate represented not the earth, not our solar system, but the whole galaxy, the Milky Way. And imagine there was 100 billion little dots in that plate. That would equal the amount of stars or suns in our galaxy. Some of them, by the way, are 1,000 times the diameter of our sun. But just try to imagine. 100 billion little dots. And one of those little dots, about three quarters of the way out in our galaxy, is our solar system. And inside that little dot that's our solar system is another little dot, which is our Earth. How big is our galaxy? Well, you know that light travels at 186,324 miles a second. You knew that, didn't you? Just testing you. How fast is that, David? Everybody say, one. one. A beam of light has just gone around the earth seven and a half times. When you said that. That's how fast light travels. That's pretty fast, isn't it? The light from our sun, it just took eight and a half minutes to reach us. Because it's relatively close, it's only 93 million miles away. Light from the moon only takes about a second and a half. It's even closer. But the light from the nearest star, traveling at 186,324 miles a second, takes four and a half years. So how long would it take to travel all the way across the galaxy? 100,000 years. At 186,324 miles a second. So are you getting a picture of how tiny, how small our earth is? And we're discovering other worlds out there every single day with Hubble, with giant telescopes on earth. And for every star that's in our galaxy, 100 billion of them, they reckon there's equally 100 billion, no less, galaxies with 100 billion stars. So there are absolutely trillions of stars, and most of them probably has planets going around them, like ours. It's huge, isn't it? And Earth is so tiny in the midst of all of that. I'm going to put an image up on the screen here in a second. I want the fellas, if you would uh, put out probably these first two row of lights plus the the spots and this one up here because we need to just get this as dark as we can. I'm hoping our camera will pick this up as well. All right, now put the, yeah, put those out too, okay? And Johnny's going to put this image up on the screen for you. Now this beautiful image. Have we have we enough light off? Are we okay? This, can you see that clearly? All right. This beautiful image is Saturn. And Saturn is one of the great gas giants. There are four terrestrial uh, planets. There's Mercury, there's Venus, there's Earth, there's Mars. And then beyond that, there's four great gas giants, Jupiter and Saturn, its near neighbor. 
and then Uranus and Neptune. How big is that? You could put 764 Earths into that. So it's pretty big. Can I maybe stand over on this side? Cause... So that's pretty big, isn't it? That's just a great big ball of gas, of hydrogen. That's even less, dent less dense than water. That could float. <laughs> it could actually float. And on the 15th of September 2006, the spacecraft Cassini took this photograph. You're looking, what you're seeing is you're looking through the lens, the photographic lens of a camera on Cassini. And behind that big ball is the sun, and it's eclipsing that. So it's a unique photograph, never been done before. And that's why it looks so bright, because in a sense we're looking at the sun, only it's blocking out the sun, so it's brightened up the whole uh, image. Now, Saturn is, is beautiful. It's not unique in that other, particularly the gas giants, has got rings around them, but Saturn's rings are the most beautiful of all of the rings on our solar system, absolutely magnificent. And they're made up of probably 93% of, of ice water that's accumulated around dust and grit, space dust. And those little crystals can be anything from just like the height of sand until the height of your car. Some even say the size of a house. And they're swirling around at an incredible speed around the equator of Saturn. Saturn, by the way, is not a very hospitable place. The winds would tear the head off you, literally. The winds blow on Saturn about 1,100 miles an hour. So that would rip the head off you, wouldn't it? There's a storm right now, today, that's been brewing for 200 days, continuously, all the way around the center of the planet, at 1,100 miles an hour. It's 180 degrees below zero. So you won't be going there for your holidays, I can tell you that. Now, go back to the rings. Even though these rings extend, even though their diameter is about 170,000 miles, they're very, very thin. They're only about probably 30, 40, 50, 60 feet at the most in depth. In fact, when those rings sometimes, when they turn sideways, you can't see them. But fortunately, we can see them this. Now, the reason why I'm showing you this is because there's something you need to see. See that little dot there? See it? Can you see it? That's the Earth. That's the Earth from 800 million miles away. So what were you doing on the 15th of September 2006 when Cassini photographed you? Babies were being born. People were being married. Wars were being fought. People were dying on that little speck there. And that's only from a near neighbor. You begin to see how small the earth is. And this is why you get so much skepticism today. Why would God be even bothered with that little speck there? Sure, what does it mean? Sure, there's billions of them out there. Trillions of stars. Why did he bother with that one? Because that's the one we live on. That's the only one that he sent his son to visit. I'm going to show you another thing just in a second. 
It's the only one he sent his son to visit. Psalm 8. Psalm said, When I consider the work of your hands, the sun, the moon, and stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visited him? You have made him just a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory. So out of all this vast universe and on that little speck right there, Jesus, the Son of God, came to visit us and to save us. Isn't that a beautiful image? Before we continue, let me just show you another image. See if you can guess what this is. Not planets around. See if you can guess what it is. Any idea what that is? Would you believe that is individual grains of sand magnified 250 times? Aren't they beautiful? Isn't God such a creator that even little grains of sand has such beauty and are so different? Their fingerprints are not the same. God is a God of infinite variety. And out of all of that variety and wonderment, he places us upon this earth and he sent his son to come to visit us. That's okay. You can put that off and put the house lights on. That's great. Thank you. And so even though man is right, it is just a tiny little planet seemingly insignificant. In fact, if it wasn't the fact that we were here, it would be insignificant. That God created it just for us. Just for us. And so man may say, well, I don't believe that God could love this world because it's so small, or I don't believe that God could love this world because it's so sick. And it is sick. It is sick. There's no question about that. And it's full of sickness and disease. Paul says the whole creation groans and travails in pain together until now. It's been ravaged with one disease or another. Multitudes are dying from starvation. Earthquakes, floods, volcanoes, droughts, ravage this little planet. It really is sick, isn't it? It needs a great physician, doesn't it? Because we couldn't put, could it, can't put it back together again. Sure we can't. We see our politicians, we trust they're doing their best, but their best's not good enough. They can't fix it. And they never will be able to fix it. The only one can fix it. It's the one who created it. And the creator is coming back to it. And the third reason they may say they don't believe that God cares about this world is because the world is so sinful. It's so evil. It's so unjust. It's so unfair. It's so wicked. It's so cruel. 
How often have you heard the statement, if God really cared about this world, he would do something. Why does God not do something? I've been reading for weeks now in one of the daily newspapers. It's a little kind of interview with various Christian ministers and also others of other faiths. And they ask them all the same questions. What was your most spiritual moment? Things that got her. What do you believe heaven will be like? Will you be bored in heaven? Maybe you've read those statements. And almost every single one of them, when they ask the question, what would you, question would you like God to answer? Almost all of them say, why is there so much suffering in this world? And that's the ministers asking that. By the way, they should know there's an answer to that. But that's what the world's saying. If God really cared, he would do something. He would stop the wars. He would get rid of all the diseases. Forgetting, of course, that God didn't make the earth this way. Forgetting that it was man rebelled against God's order and fell into sin. And Satan has come in and has all but destroyed this earth that we live on. And God will restore it. And God will bring it back to health. And there will come a day when there will be no more wars, no more pain, no more sickness, no more sorrow, no more dying. And as you know, the first two chapters of Genesis, there's none of that. The last two chapters of Revelation, there's none of that. It's the bit in between where the devil comes on the scene and when he's taken out of the scene. So it's not too hard to figure where it comes from, is it? For God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him. All through the ages there has been religious leaders that have made all kinds of fanciful, extravagant claims about themselves. And all of them has claimed to have revelations and visions and all kinds of claims have been made. We've had prophets, we've had sages, we've had all kinds of Messiahs and saviors have come upon the earth. Muhammad, Buddha, Krishna. We've had Joseph Smith, who was able to so-called read the golden plates with special glasses. You can't believe anybody would believe that, but sadly, they do. He had Emperor Hirohisho, he believed he was a god, and on and on it goes. But whenever Jesus Christ came, the claims that he made about himself were extraordinary, were phenomenal, were almost unbelievable. His claims were so great that the Jews called it blasphemy. Why? Because he claimed he was God in the flesh. That's a big claim, isn't it? If somebody came today and said they were God in the flesh, how would you treat them? They'd have to prove it, wouldn't they? He said to Philip, He who has seen me has seen the Father. He claimed to be God in the flesh. I and my Father are one. 
He claimed to be eternal. He said, before Abraham was, I am. That's a big claim, isn't it? It's an extraordinary claim. He said, behold, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from the sky. That's a big claim, isn't it? And in John chapter 17, that great prayer he prays, he talked of the glory that he had with the Father before the world began. He talked about the love the Father had for him before the foundation of the world. And so he claimed he was God. He claimed he was eternal. He claimed he came from heaven. In John 17 again, he said his Father sent him and he came from him. He said, I am not of this world. You have sent me into this world. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I myself, but he sent me. To that little speck that we showed you on the screen. To the only place in the whole universe. He says, that's where the Father sent me. I didn't come from here. He says, I came from there, from the Father, to here. And then he claimed he was going back to heaven again. John 6, 62 he said he was the living bread that came down from heaven. That's what he told the disciples. And they got all muddled about that and got a bit concerned because they didn't get it. He was speaking spiritually. He didn't understand that. He says, well, let me help you. He says, well, what, what if I go back to heaven? If you think that I'm talking about real bread, I'm real. But what, what if I go back to heaven? What are you going to do then? He was speaking spiritually. But he said he was going back to heaven. He says, I am not of this world. For I proceeded forth and came from God. And then twice in John 17, he said to the Father, I come to you. In John 7, 33, he said, Yet a little while I am with you, then I shall go unto him that sent me. So these are incredible claims for any religious leader to make. Then he claimed he was coming back to earth again. John 14, 3, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back again. There is a guilt edge promise from the lips of the Son of God. There is nothing sure that he is coming back to this earth again. He's not going to leave it in the mess it's in now. No, sir. He's coming back again. Now, why am I saying all of this? Because of our text. Whosoever believes in him. That's a lot to believe in, isn't it? That's a lot to get your head around. But he poses the question, whosoever believes in him. Now either he is who he said he is or he's the biggest deceiver in all of history. He's either one or the other. But he can't be both. Because there's some people, you know, they like to say, well, I, I believe Jesus was a good man. Maybe even a prophet. 
He's a good man. Do you know the, the drama of Jesus Christ Superstar? You know it's blasphemous? You know that? Do you know that the writers believed that Jesus was deluded? That he was just an ordinary man with a messianic complex? And that Judas got a raw deal in the whole thing? That was their message. That here was a man who lived in Palestine 2,000 years ago and he had a messianic complex and he got a crowd of followers and he ended up believing it. So he either is who he said he is or he is the biggest deceiver. He can't be just a good man. A good man wouldn't say, I am God in the flesh. Wouldn't say that. A good man wouldn't accept worship unto himself. Wouldn't do that. A good man certainly wouldn't say, no one can come unto the Father except by me. He's either the Son of God or he's a deceiver. Certainly wouldn't be a moral man if he wasn't the Son of God saying those things. And certainly wouldn't be a prophet. He'd be an imposter, wouldn't he? That whosoever believes in him, we're going to close in a moment or two. This is very exclusive, and yet it's inclusive. It's both. It's very inclusive. Whosoever believes in him. People are looking for someone or something to believe in. And they're looking to gurus. And they're looking to the stars. They're looking for spirit guides. And they're dabbling in all kinds of Eastern mysticism. They're looking for something. They're looking for their spirituality. One of those items I read, I told you about a moment ago, of, of, of religious leaders. Uh, one of them, in yesterday's paper, asked him his most spiritual enlightening moment. He says, when a beggar gave me a piece of bread. And I thought, God help this man. He is blind. He doesn't know Christ. He doesn't know the Son of God. He's in darkness. And when I read the whole thing, it was just gobbledygook. It could have meant anything to anybody. And he's the head of a religious group of people in this country. He hasn't got a clue about the Son of God. He probably just thinks Jesus was a good man. That's probably what he thinks. But this is very exclusive. That whosoever believes in him, how exclusive is that? In him and in him alone. He will tolerate no others. They're wanting enlightenment. I am the light of the world. They're wanting to find truth. I am the truth. They're wanting to find a way. I am the way. They want to find life. I am the life. See how exclusive that is. It's all directed to him and him alone. Of course, I'm preaching to the converted tonight. I know that. But you need to know how people think. And you see, we live in a, a generation today that's not Bible literate haven't got a clue about the Bible. There's a generation growing up that doesn't go to Sunday school and may never, ever go to Sunday school. Who wouldn't know where the Gospel of John was in the Bible, haven't even got a Bible in their home. That's the generation that's growing up today. And this is the stuff they believe because this is the stuff they hear and they see that's pushed at them all day long. 
But as well as being exclusive, it's very inclusive. Whosoever believes in him. See how inclusive that is. It includes anybody and everybody that will believe in him. For God so loved the world. There isn't a general sense that whoever believes in him, whosoever believes in him, there's a particular sense. For God so loved the world, that's all men, that whosoever, that's you, that's me. And so the wonderful thing about this gospel of Jesus Christ is it's exclusive. We have to point men to him and to him alone. But the wonderful thing is we can point all men to him. It's for every race, for every color. <laughs> for the black man, the white man, the red man, and the orange and the green man, and our wee country, or any other color in between you like. It's very inclusive. Whosoever believes in him. D.L. Moody, one time the great preacher of old in America, one time preached to more people on earth than anybody else. A very simple way of presenting things as an evangelist, as evangelists do. He's in this conversation this time with this young woman who was struggling to believe. And she says, I can't believe. I just can't believe. And he says, whom can't you believe? Whom can't you believe? He was getting her away from all the beliefs under the person of Jesus. Whom can't you believe? I'm only talking about one person, Jesus. Can you not believe him? See, all our religious leaders, whenever they die, they leave their teachings behind. And as long as you believe their teachings, you'll be all right. That's the way that it goes. They don't have to be there. As long as you believe their teachings. But this doesn't work with Christianity. Whoever believes in him, not just the teachings, but the teacher. Not just the sermons and the sayings he spoke, but the Savior. And that's the unique thing about Christianity. Other religious leaders and philosophies become outgrown. I don't know if you ever talk to a Mormon. Sometimes they come to the doors or Jehovah's Witness, but... They don't really want to talk about Joseph Smith. No, no. They've outgrown that. I remember Jehovah's Witnesses came to my door one day. It was, it was two girls, it happened to be, actually. And uh, I says, can I talk about Charles Taze Russell? I says, no. <laughs> Very adamant, no. I says, but he was the guy who started your religion. But we have all our prophets now. I said, no, I'd like to talk about him. Thank you very much. Because there were a few questions like that. No, 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 we have other prophets. They did not want to talk because they'd outgrown that, you see. Because all of his claims and all of his promises about Christ's coming, all of them failed and fell. 
And I want to talk about that. They've got new prophets today. But you can't do that with Jesus. After 2,000 years, it's still whoever believes in him. In him and in him alone. Glory to God. And so we can't outgrow Christ. We've got to believe in him. That's why in Romans chapter 10, we'll close here. Verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. It didn't say the Beatitudes of the Ten Commandments. Wonderful as they are. You ought to know them. But if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Verse 13, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Can't get away from him, sure we can't. And the whole object of next weekend is him. Is pointing men and women to him. And that's what will be preached. And among all the other things that Paul will share, no doubt. The whole object and all of her prayers and all of the preaching and all of the invitations will be to lift up him. Because they don't know his teachings yet. They don't know any scriptures yet, most of them. But we'll point them to him. And once they get to know him, their life will change. Amen? I'm looking forward to next weekend. Really am. I'm trusting and believing with all of my heart that men and women will come through that door that we invite. Not all that we invite will. But we've got to throw out the net as much as we can. And if we cast out the net, the fish will come in. Amen? And wouldn't it be lovely introducing people to him? And wouldn't it be lovely for them to find the reason why we live in that little speck called earth and why the Son of God visited this earth and why he's coming back again to visit us? Wouldn't that be lovely for them to know that the way we know that? Wouldn't it be great if your family members, a brother, a sister, son or a daughter, a grandchild, wouldn't it be wonderful if they came to Christ? Wouldn't that be great? Are you believing for that? Are you praying for that? Are you? Are we just going to come hoping it's going to happen and just say, well, so-and-so invites such-and-such and I don't have anybody, so I'll just not bother. And Well, if everybody did that. But we're not going to do that. Sure, we're not. We're going to invite and we're going to pray and we're going to come and we're going to believe. Because when Paul comes, he is fired up. He is ready to go. He can't wait to come. And his whole passion and heart this time is to see people one for Christ. And if we can connect with that and together, eh, one will sow, one will reap, but the sowers and reapers will rejoice together. Amen. Glory to God. Praise the Lord.
Right, stand with us.